Dan, thank you so much for collaborating with APQC. Your book is wonderful. I love it. it the Culture Code offers a roadmap for creating an environment where in, innovation flourishes, problems get solved, and expectations are exceeded. So with that beautiful statement, I believe that there are going to be so many beautiful things in your book that will help business leaders and knowledge management leaders improve and evolve their KM programs. So thanks for thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Cindy. It's really fun to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to my time uh, at, at APQC. Very good. Well, look, we're so let me give a, a little bit of context just to position some of the questions I want to ask you. As I said... Mm -hmm. One of our big things, you know, our role in knowledge management's role is to build processes and enable those processes with tools to help knowledge flow to the right person at the right time so they can take it and do something important with it, make a decision, improve something, learn, but add value to the overall organization. And our goal all these years is to build the KM system, people, processes, and technology, into the flow of work. We get um, challenge sometimes because we stay above it. But we build that system so that success happens when the system gets pulled into the flow of work. And so with all of that said, um, a very short way to encapsulate in, in, uh, to put together 20 years of research and work from APQC's perspective, but there's no doubt that our number one success factor is having people participate in those processes and use those tools. And so we find that knowledge management really starts doing a lot of things without fully understanding the environment or culture that it resides in. So this is why I think you're your book is so important. So my very first question for you is what steps should a knowledge management group take to start understanding their culture? Yeah, that's that's a really cool question. And, and um, I think hey, it's a lot. There's a lot of different ways. This, this conversation of culture can go so many different directions and so many different dimensions. And we all think about it and talk about it all the time. But I guess the place for me to start is reflect and think about the best group that you've ever been a part of. Like we've, we've all, no matter what, we have been in groups, in school, in sports, in work, in family, where everyone is kind of energized to be there and you don't have to debate what to do next. Um, everybody, nobody is out about taking credit or being a bad apple. Everyone's working together, almost moving, you know, moving together like a school of fish or a flock of birds or, or, a, or a great sports team. Yeah, at peak performance. And I think when we think about that, um, I think that's the first big reflection that, that we should focus on in culture. We want to create that. Um, that isn't magic. You know, it feels like magic when it happens, when we, when we think about it. Oh, that magical group we were part of, that great class, that great team. It feels like magic, but it's not. It's, it's behaviors. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. And I would say that there are sort of three keystone behaviors that will determine the success or failure of, of any culture. Um, and so the first, so step one is like, get away from the words. It's not about words. It's about behaviors. It's about what you do, right? And when you're doing it right, when you're in that, I love when you say um, getting the information to the right person at the right time. That's, that's what great teams do. It's about information flow. And if information is going to flow, if it's going to get to the right person at the right time, there's three things that have to happen. First, you have to behave, it's all behavior, behaviors of safety. You have to create connection. The group has to be connected. 
Uh, and the way we decide whether we're connected as humans is whether we're safe or not, if we feel safe. If we don't feel safe, we don't connect. If we feel safe, we connect. It's, a, it's like a switch. It's like a light switch. Secondly, we've got to share vulnerability. The behavior, not the talk, but the behavior of actually sharing risk with someone, of actually showing um, that you're in it together, some skin in the game. Um, and that allows information to flow. That's how you get actual accurate information to flow. And then thirdly, you got to figure out what direction that you're going, right? I mean, every, if you think of a flock of birds or a school of fish or a sports team going for a goal, like you've got to have a really clear, and this is the third behavior, a really clear, well-established purpose. So, um, you know, we talk about those words all the time. We talk about cohesion and cooperation and mission and purpose. Those are just words, right? But when you get down to it, whether it's, whether it's your team you're working on now or the best team you were ever a part of, they were doing those three behaviors because that's how functionally, it's about being functional. Like you got to connect. You got to have that function of connection. You got to have that function of sharing information and vulnerability and you got to have that direction. And, and so that's kind of the, the mental model that, that, um, you know, in the course of the five years reporting the book and looking at the science of cohesion um, that, you know, we're going to be talking about when we're together. And that's what I would say is the, the, the key. The first, the first key is kind of thinking and reflecting about what you're doing together in, in those three dimensions. Dan, I think you've just given us a whole new way to think about visioning because KM teams get together a lot and they vision what this is going to mm -hmm. look like and they think about the business vision all that. But the way you just positioned that is perfect in terms of, you know, think about the best team you've ever been on, the best group you've ever worked with. That's that's pretty magical. So, look, let me peel back into I loved your whole recipe of safety vulnerability and road mapping. So that purpose mm -hmm. of where you're going. So start with the whole safety thing, because I think it's a really, I think this is a big deal for KM leaders. Remember a lot of times you're going to meet people at our conference who have great mature, have sustained KM programs for a long time. And you're going to see some people who are just now coming to the table to get started again. So what does a KM leader do to get this started? How, what's the formula for putting together the groups to help them collaborate better? Yeah, that first, that first moment of whether, whether a group is connected or not is super interesting because when you look at the science, we decide whether we're connected very, very early in our interactions. And I guess one way to think about that is think about the last restaurant you walked into like you decide pretty quick whether it's going to be a great night or not um, <laughs> yeah. based on the first few interactions you have that's not the exception that's how your brain is built um, and that's true and whenever you join a team there's something called critical moments theory and it focuses on the first few minutes with a team so and it focuses on the first disagreement that a team has those moments form the norms and the rules and the lanes and the grooves through which that team will interact and so as a leader, as a knowledge management leader, you really have to pay keen attention to those things, to that first moment and that first disagreement. How are you going to manage those things? How is information going to flow in those moments? And sending a really clear, simple signal, I see you, we're connected, we share a future, can be incredibly powerful. I mean, there's one story that comes to mind um, as we're talking about a company called Wipro. Um, they were a call center, and they struggled with retention because people mm -hmm. didn't feel very connected. And every year, 50% of their, their workforce left, and they tried everything. They tried changing the perks. They tried changing the campus. None of it worked until they tried this one-hour experiment, which was really simple. They had one group do one hour of standard training, 
where they learned about a star performer and they looked at the job and they had the other, and at the end, that group got a sweatshirt with Wipro's name on it. And the other group though, had one hour where instead of telling them about Wipro, they asked the trainees about themselves. They said, tell me what happens on your best day. Tell me what happens on your worst day. If we were in a desert island together, what would you bring to our survival? Like, can you play music or build things? And then at the end, they all got a sweatshirt too, except instead of saying Wipro, it had the trainee's name on it. It had their first name. And then the clock, they let the clock spin. And seven months later, retention in the second group went up 270%. (gasps) It's massive. You can get a massive change if you pay keen attention. They, they, They didn't do much. It just was an hour, right? But it was an hour that contained a really clear signal. It's called a belonging cue. And good leaders use them all the time. You know, belonging cue, it's a really clear, simple signal that says, hey, look, we're connected. We share a future. I see you. I care. And it's, it sounds soft. You know, it sounds like, oh, it's all holding hands and yeah. singing kumbaya. But it's not. It's sort of the most crystal clear part of our brains that is simply determining, like, is this a safe place for me? You know, and yeah. so paying attention to that that moment, that first hour, that first day, that first disagreement is one of the most important things you can do. Well, I think the soft stuff is the hardest stuff, Dan. I've decided at this point in my life. This is great. Right. And you know what, Dan? I, this is going to be so good because knowledge management leaders truly bring people together at all levels. So I think what you, your example was great because I think whether you're bringing together your advisory group of you know senior leaders or you're bringing together the core group with your partnerships so of people who are going to enable this or you're going down to where the work gets done, where the managers and the directors are that you know manage the people and deal with the behaviors, I think that's going to be really good for them, a good formula to follow. I love that's that. cool. Well, so let me ask you this. So there's always challenges, right? There's always that Mm -hmm. slippery slope. Now, for years and years, we hear knowledge is power. And I still I still walk into organizations today that say they have that. But, you know, I think the the thing that I end up observing is um, it's more about the attention span. Right. You know, I've got so much energy Mm -hmm. I'm going to put into this. So whether it's attention or knowledge, how do you get people to be vulnerable in a culture that has that we are too busy to do this or knowledge is power. And they may be different. You may have to tackle, you know, there may be different tactics for each one of those, those scenarios. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, it all, it all gets around that question of vulnerability and it's, it's hard, you know, um, it's, 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 it's hard for, let's pull back for a second and just talk about, you know, why vulnerability is important because it's a little counterintuitive. Like you wouldn't think that, like, you know, being open and vulnerable, something that doesn't happen a lot at work, uh, especially in places that value knowledge. People like to be protected. Um, but really, if any group is going to function together, they got to share information. And, and, and now, you know, we live in a world where most of the easy problems have been solved, right? Uh, your groups are trying to do really complex things that you need a group brain to do. And so that means vulnerability is not an option. It's a biological necessity. It's an organizational necessity. And to send a signal, the leader, you know, we're naturally kind of hierarchical creatures, and it ends up being really, really important for leaders to send that signal early on. Uh, and a couple of examples. Um, I ended up spending time with a guy named Dave Cooper who trained the troops that got bin Laden. And when I met Dave Cooper, he's a Navy SEALs Team 6 um, commander. And when I met him, 
he said something that really struck me. He said, the most important words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. <laughs> yeah. And that stunned me at the time. Because I thought, oh, this guy's a Navy SEAL. He's got to be pretty confident, right? Like, like what, why would he say that? And, and, and then when you look at the science and when you look at the psychology, when a leader sends that signal and says, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to tell you what to do and just make you be obedient. I really need you to share information with me, and I'm going to share information with you. Sending that signal gives everyone permission to exhale and to open up and talk about what's really going on. And it doesn't happen unless the leader sends that signal. And to go a little further, it doesn't happen unless the leader sends that signal over and over and over. You can't just send it once. And so you see smart leaders doing things like, there's a, there's a cool technique that um, a guy named Laszlo Bach, who used to work at Google, who's the head of people analytics at Google, calls it the two-line email. And it's when a leader sends an email to his group or her group that says, hey, tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. Oh. It's just two lines, right? It's, it, it doesn't take long to send, but it sends a massively big signal of vulnerability of saying, hey, help me, help me out. Yeah, I want to learn. I want to get better. And what you'll find as a leader, if you send that out, your people will also send that same email out. And, and it will create sort of a feedback loop where you send a signal, hey, it's safe to open up here. Um, we need to tell each other the truth. So that leader's signal ends up being, you know, sort of by far the most important thing. The second most important thing, though, that you can do is to turn it into an organizational habit. To turn moments of openness and vulnerability and candor into a habit where, and the best way I've seen of doing this is something that, it's, it's, a, it's an idea that the SEALs use, a habit that the SEALs use called mm -hmm. an after-action review, AAR. And after every mission or after every, every training run, they circle up really briefly, and they're led by one of the lowest-ranking officers in the group. And they walk through what went well, what didn't go well, and what they're going to do differently next time. And it's a really simple meeting, but it creates almost like a gym workout, this sort of productive pain of honesty, vulnerability, openness, and sharing of information. Yeah. You're not walking away with, with whatever um, thoughts, resentments, mental models you have in your head. Um, you are sharing them and creating a shared brain uh, with which to attack the next problem. So like the leader signal and the organizational habit end up being two really simple powerful um you know ways to create that that good that good friction and i just just one more quick point which is i think a lot of people look at great culture and say oh it must be frictionless to work like oh if you work at pixar or if you're in the navy seals or if you're in the san antonio spurs or a great culture like people don't argue they've got it all figured out that that's really wrong i mean great cultures are if anything else there's actually more tension there because they're, they're, they're energetically arguing and, and discussing and working towards solutions to hard problems. Yeah. Friction isn't a problem. It's actually kind of the solution. Like you, if you've got somebody that you can have a tough, real, honest, open conversation with and still feel totally warm and connected to them, that's amazing. Like that's what you want, right? Whether that's in a, in a good marriage with your kids or with any great group, you've got that combination of connection and, and productive friction. So friction isn't something to be avoided, it's something to be really cultivated.
Absolutely. You're giving me so many good ideas just to start with, with the after action reviews. That's going to be such an exciting thing to talk about. I've never thought about those because we've done those in knowledge management forever. They even transfer to mm-hmm. lessons learned. So a little bit of the longer term. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's going to be interesting to think about that as a vulnerability. Yeah. Yes. Right. I like that. It's not about judging or casting blame or creating credit. They can sometimes get framed under that. But when you frame it as learning, like just ask a question. What did we just learn here? Can be really powerful. It really is. And I love your comment about Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs because I can't imagine anyone arguing with him. But it must happen. <laughs> they got a good it's, system over there. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's not fun to argue with him, but you are, at the end of it, he always says, ah, I should have hired people who only agree with me. Yeah. He says that a yeah. Boy, Dan, I know one thing. We're going we're gonna to want to talk to you for much longer than just an hour, hour and a half at this conference. We need you for eight hours. Tell me. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. True. You're bringing back, you're, you're giving, you're inspiring me with new ideas. So, okay, so let's get to this road mapping thing because, you know, we love road mapping at APQC and the whole knowledge management methodology has, you know, a a road map that really grounds a lot of organizations to say, gosh, we've got business priorities. Here's our knowledge priorities. Now, how does KM come in and through a set of activities and enablers and tools start building, putting those together? And so the, the notion of road mapping has always been important, but yours took it a little bit further. So talk a little bit about that and then give us some tips or techniques that you've seen before that would help us align to existing priorities and not recreating right. the wheel. Right, right. Yeah, you know, so it's super, part, part of super interesting. It kind of, it's a combination of storytelling and reflection and everything else. Like, and I guess the, the the story makes me think of is the story of Danny Meyer, uh, who I'm sure some of your some of your people have eaten at some of his restaurants in New York over the years. He's mm-hmm. got about 20 restaurants there: the Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern. Um, huge success, and they're like the the Navy SEALs of the restaurant world. They're just an incredible group. Um, the uh, you know he opened one restaurant and it was successful. He opened a second and um, they both started to fail because he was what the culture was in that restaurant. He when you looked at him, you knew what to do. You knew what was important. You knew what the roadmap. He was a living roadmap. And when he had two though, they both started to fail. And he realized he needed to take a step back and be explicit about his priorities, about values, about what mattered. And um, he he you know did a retreat, like closed the restaurants for a week, went back with all his people, and they started writing mantras short simple clear sayings that capped that and captured their their priorities and captured their values and a lot of times um you know they actually turn out to be really corny like like you know and it's funny most of the places that i visited for the book um they all had a set of very corny mantras um some of the ones that danny meyer wrote were about the you should have the excellence reflex and we should create raves and servers the servers in the restaurant are surfers of mistakes. Like that's what the, the mistake is a wave and they surf the mistake. And they're all kind of corny and they're goofy, um, but they're also incredibly powerful. You know, we often think about purpose and r- the roadmap of values and the roadmap ahead to be kind of in people's hearts or in people's guts. And what Danny Meyer's experience, I think, demonstrates is that it's about, it's not about the heart, it's not about the guts, it's about the windshield. 
It's about filling the windshield of your people with really clear signals of purpose, really clear mantras, really clear images, really clear, clear stories that capture what you're doing and the benefit at the end of the road that you're trying to create. Um, and, and to that end, I think, I think one of the, one of the things, um, that can be helpful and a tool in that department is this concept of a mantra map. Mm. It's when you sit down and you start sketching out the, and most of them, if they're corny, that's actually a good sign. Sketch out like the core problems your people face and how they get around them. Um, tell some heroic stories from, from there and try to capture them. Uh, is it about uh, someone loving problems, for instance? Is that a mantra that works for your group, um, as it did for Danny Meyer? I think he, he, uh, he identified some bad behaviors that he didn't like, and he named them. So to really name the real tensions that you face um, can be a powerful, a powerful thing. And the other tool that I'd recommend is something called a culture capture. And that's where you sort of survey your people in a, in a deep and extensive way where you talk about the, tell me some stories about what made you happiest to work here. Tell me some stories about the hardest times working here. What dilemmas do you repeatedly encounter? Um, and there's a lot of examples out there for the types of questions you would ask. Mm -hmm. And then you analyze the answers and you try to identify themes and the themes that you hear. And you identify them in terms of the tensions that they capture. Tensions are actually a good thing. Um, you know, working as a group, you're trying to do really hard stuff together. And so identifying the barriers and obstacles that you repeatedly encounter, um, you know, for example, you know, there, there's a lot of places where there's a balance between the tension between tradition and innovation and, and identifying that tension and making it explicit through a culture capture and then sharing those results back to the people saying, look, we have this tension and it's a really good thing. We need to innovate all the time, but we also need to respect all of the institutional knowledge that comes before us. And so identifying that tension prevents people from kind of bunkering and siloing in one side or the other of that tension. And it makes it into something that you're navigating together. Um, you know, like Danny Meyer's mantra, loving problems is one of them. He doesn't say the problems don't happen. Um, you know, problems happen all the time in the restaurant business, but the response that he wants and the, the, the mantra that he wants people to have in mind is that you should love those moments. And that's corny. And it's also really smart. So, you know, building a mantra map and reflecting deeply on the core tensions that your organization faces can can really help you, like, build, you know, not only the roadmap, but kind of the la understand the landscape beneath the roadmap. You know, the top of the topography, the, the canyons, the mountains that you're trying to climb together. Um, that ends up, you know, being being a powerful process. It really is, Dan. You're giving us you're going to give us so many great ways to rethink this whole thing called culture. A lot of us have been scared of the C word all these years because, you know, knowledge management is, is a little vulnerable in that we to go in and say we're going to change the culture is a little bit overstated at the beginning because not everybody's typically not a believer. So these are, these are great tips for, for um, our group that's going to be with you. So I have just a quick question about the safety, vulnerability, and roadmap. Is that a specific order? Do you feel like one of those, kind of, like, do you need to deal with safety and then vulnerability and then roadmapping, or does it matter in terms of? You're exactly right. No, I, the safety thing comes first. I mean, for okay. any group whether that's, you know, family or sports or any, any group of human beings, you got to be connected first. That lets everything else happen. 
So, you know, belonging yeah. and safety come absolutely, it's a priority. That's the platform on which the other stuff happens. You can be great at purpose and have a great purpose, but man, if everybody's not connected, forget yeah. about it. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't help. Doesn't help. So you're, you're absolutely right to hone in on that as, a, as, as the step 1A. Good. That's going to be a big thing then that we're going to want to keep talking about over the next few months and with you then in May, because that's that's always a tough one for, for KM to do, because it does require um, reaching out beyond just that little world of knowledge management. You know, we, you're going to meet a lot of us and we we've waved the banner proudly all these years of, of being knowledge workers and knowledge leaders. So. This will be so a fun cool. conversation. So that kind of leads me. I have, I have one more question for you, if you don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. sure. So there, it, it kind of gets into what I was talking about. There's this whole thing called branding, and you mentioned branding in your book and the power of the brand and how it supports sustaining things over time. So there's always a challenge. I just want to lay out the challenges for you for knowledge management. If you mm-hmm. brand really – so the first thing is the first thing you hear your audience say when you're new – to knowledge management is, well, I don't want you to manage my knowledge. Oh, another initiative. I mean, you know, just the words knowledge management, somebody thinks they're going to come in and manage your whole brain and, and what you know. Yes. So right. that's, that's always a hurdle. So we see a lot of our, you know, people who have sustained, call it knowledge transfer, knowledge sharing, you know, all types of names. But talk about, so, so, I just want to hear a little bit more about branding and creating that sense of, of purpose. Tell us what you know about that and how we might can relate or ad- adopt some of those things that you found successful to help us with the brand. What a cool conversation to have. I, I, I think those simple words are massively important, management versus sharing. Um, and I've seen that uh, work out in so many different worlds. I just had a, a conversation with a bank, a big bank. And in the old days, they were all about providing information. And that's what they wanted to do. That's how they trained people. That's how they thought. And they just have realized, like, just in the last year, we don't do that anymore. Everybody has the information. We actually have, we're actually an analyst school. Mm-hmm. And, and it sort of changed the way they think about themselves. I call it like a a generational metaphor. Like, it generates, it's at the core of who they are. And that metaphor of of being a school versus being a provider um, is massively different. And the metaphor between being a knowledge manager or being a knowledge sharer is everything. It's huge. It's, it's like the story around which everything else is perceived. And so I think it's a really worthwhile conversation to have because, um, and you can't help it. You know, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're exactly the same people, but you know, the story, the narrative uh, through which you present yourself, call it branding is, you know, like the most important thing, you know, that's the first window, first lens through which people view you. So I would say that's a really, really worthwhile conversation to have, especially if the word, if certain words or certain metaphors are, are becoming um, barriers and and static for people to perceive you. Um, So, yeah, I would say smart groups are continually, especially in this day and age when things are moving fast and changing fast, continually reflecting on that. And there's so many kind of cautionary tales, whether it's Kodak or Xerox, places that missed it. Mm-hmm. didn't understand that, you know, Kodak should not think of itself as a film business, right? They're in the image business. If they thought of themselves as being image sharers as opposed to film developers or film manufacturers, 
they might be around today. So it's, it's really important to get that identity metaphor correct um, and, and make it uh, a powerful stepping stone through which you can connect, not a barrier that keeps people from you. Yeah, I think your I think your formula and your recipe, Dan, of safety, vulnerability, and red mapping is really going to help us rethink some of the things that maybe are working but not taking us to the next level, or that haven't been working. And <laughs> we need to yeah. to reposition them and how we're how we're um, offering them up as services and things to our audience. This is great. Yeah, it's well, going to be fun. It is going to be fun, and you know, I know that. Um, you are going to give our members an experience of a lifetime. So I'm so glad you're going to join us in May. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks, Jenny. It's been a really fun talking to you, and I can't wait for the conversation to continue. Okay, now hang on.